I'm Trudy Kerr and welcome to The Interviewer. In this series, I'll be talking to artists, campaigners, men and women of influence, musicians, performers and anyone who shapes the fabric of our society. Today, I'm talking to a wild character of a photographer. As colourful and sometimes as controversial as his images, René Rosignol made his name as a photographer in conflict zones around the world. He also is well known as the photographer shooting stars at the International MTV Awards and famous personalities from all over the globe. René is also the man behind the flying fish of the 2019 storm <laughs> video, as was seen by millions around the world. René, welcome to the interviewer. How are you? I'm, well, thank you. Nobody ever asked me that. I'm great. How are you? You just made me sound like I'm rich from all the introduction. <laughs> But my bank account says totally opposite. <laughs> well, we're going to come to that because, of course, it's been COVID and it's been a challenge for, for you and what you do. But I want to start off with this. If I type in Rosignol Fish Storm yeah. to Google, literally hundreds of pages reference that video I just mentioned. Yep. This video is of you parked in Shimshia during the famous storm in 2019, and you're filming men picking up fish who've broken out from a fish farm. How many people to date have actually seen this video? I've lost count, but what I know is in the first 24 hours, it had 1.5 million views just on Facebook. And then there was the YouTube. And then it went on practically every TV station around the world. I mean, I had people contacting me from Australia, New Zealand, Japan, Canada, people who have maybe shot their wedding, you know, acquaintances you make in your lifetime. And like you've met them like 10, 15 years ago. And they're sitting in their, in their like lounge watching TV and they go, look, this is crazy dude who shot my wedding. He's shooting fish now. And, and you get all these messages and emails coming in from all over the world. And then you realize how far that video had traveled. Because I used to Google it every day just to see what had arrived. It wasn't enough. You know, when you get these funny Italian programs like Strisa La Notizia, who were having a whole feature about it. Then you had CNN, BBC, you had New York Times. I've just mentioned a few. But literally, I've lost track. So yeah, it was it was quite big. I mean, I'm not kidding. You type in Rosignol Fish Storm mm -hmm. and literally hundreds of pages about this video. All of the news portals. Amazing. And you know what's even more amazing about it? You have a camera bag with you and you could have 20, 30 grand of equipment with you. This was shot on my phone. <laughs> Brilliant, no? I think it's fantastic. Yeah. There, there we are. You know, Malta's one of Malta's best Photographers, one of the world's best photographers. Really? And I'm yeah, broke? Yeah. No, no, one no, of the no, world's no, best no. photographers. And there you are with your mobile phone, shooting men, picking up fish from the road in Shemshia in a storm. And there you go. You are all over the globe. Impressive, no? It's very impressive. Yeah. Highlight just, of your career. Yeah, yeah. Not just a pretty <laughs> face, I think. Talking about your career. So let's go back to the very beginning because <clears throat> you got your name yeah. as a photographer going into conflict zones and places that most people didn't want to go. Was that a strategic move or do you just love the adventure and the danger? It's just a holiday for me and people look at me like, you're weird. And I go, I know, I'm weird. It's just a holiday for me. If there's a war zone, I try and book myself flights and go to a war zone because for me, it's an adventure. And the worst thing you could put me in is like taking me to the Maldives and leave me on a sunbed for the whole day. And if I can go, you know, cage, um, shark cage diving or something, that would be fine. So no, it has to be fun. It has to be adventurous. The war zones for me became part of my life. It's like 
um, again, talking to my psychologist about this, and she's like scratching her head, like, what's wrong with you? I know. I said, I feel at home <laughs> when I'm in a war zone. You know, and she can't understand that because it's when you feel so alive, it's like the adrenaline within you keeps you on edge, literally. You can't screw up. The moment you screw up, you obviously go back home in a box. You know, you always have to be on edge and making sure you're doing the right thing, the right steps, the right move. Don't move too fast. You know, sometimes even getting your camera from behind your shoulder can get you killed. It's all about movement. It's all about attitude and the way you treat and respect people in a war zone that could actually keep you alive. I think that this is what has so far <laughs> kept me alive. Um, something very brief. I never cross into the country legally. You know, so that I can get a plane and go, hey, I'm going to Libya during the war. Or I'm going to Syria. No, you go to the neighboring country if there's visas are allowed for them, and then you walk into the other country. You know, so if it was going into Libya, I crossed through the desert in, in between Egypt and Libya. And then you meet the rebels, you make friends with them, you give them some money, and you end up going around with them for the next two weeks. If it's going into Syria, you crossed into Jordan, then I had to walk across the mountains with other families, and obviously sometimes you get shot at. <laughs> you know, there's, there's lots of things that can happen, but that's the best way of capturing the images because you get to meet the people. I've seen a CNN reporter there, and he goes, um, you're from Walter, right? And he said, you're mad. I said, yeah, tell me something I don't know, because he was there with four armored cars. So this, this English journalist, he had a car with a medic, a car with an interpreter, a car with um, security, and his own armed car moving around Libya. So you're attracting attention. How can you get amazing images if the moment you arrive, it's like the Pope is driving into your Miser Miserata, you know, or Benghazi? So when, you move, when you're driving into these villages and on the, you're sitting on the back of one of these Toyota with a machine gun stuck at the back, then you don't, you don't gather attention because you're just one of them. So that's how you get the better images. But you must have known when you decided to go down this route mm -hmm. that this would make you as a photographer. I had this, no you, idea. You must no. have known. It must have been some strategy there. No. I call it luck. <laughs> I think it might be a little bit more than luck there because you, if that is the case, you've been incredibly lucky. Is this yeah. René Rosignon from birth? Is this kind of adrenaline junkie want to take everything to the very very furthest limit is that you as a personality well when i was a kid actually my mom's crazy now because of me so <laughs> literally i drove my mom mad so i mean i remember being a kid in sweetie when sweet was just fields and construction sites in the 80s and all i did every day after school is climb inside these buildings being built and jump from building to the other you know just like adventure seeking um, I spent all my childhood on a BMX. Obviously, it grew into motorbikes, it grew into cars, but this is how I started, BMX. BMXing, taking photos of us jumping high up, who can jump the highest, who can break the most bones, and that's how photography started. At the age of 16, I had this passion of shooting lightning, and it was one of my first tattoos, which I obviously have on my shoulder today, which is close to my heart on the left side, which is a lightning bolt striking right through a Nikon F5, which was the first camera I ever had. Um, it was a film camera, obviously. So when I was 16, I would sit on the roof and try and take photos of lightning bolts coming down in the fields of Sweetie. Those days, Sweetie was all fields. Um, at the age of 17, close to 18, I had this photo published on the front page of a newspaper. And it was the Malt Independent back in those days. And a few months later, they had um, a job application. And I, I submitted. I said, like, listen, hey, I had my photo published once in your front page. I knew nothing about journalism. I had just finished studying photography. 
I had just graduated in graphic design and art and sculpture. So again, not really into photography, but part of it. And then from then onwards, I was employed with the newspaper. I didn't even have a driving license. And from then on, it took off. I mean, I spent seven, eight years working with practically every newspaper or magazine on the island. When Malta joined the EU on the 1st of May, I forgot the year, sorry, I said, new start for Malta, new start for me. I'm not working for Maltese people anymore, except freelance. And that was the day I resigned from every newspaper or every local magazine who had employed me. From then onwards, it was just freelance jobs and just fun and adventure. This is an incredible story, but let me go back to these this conflict zones that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. But you talk about going into Libya, into Syria, into these conflict zones. Did you ever have a moment where you thought this really could be it, where, where you really thought maybe you'd step too far or this situation was too dangerous and there could be lights out? I mean, you live once. Um, if I die tomorrow... I could say I had an amazing life. It's as full as an egg. I've done everything I could possibly do until the age of 40. Yes, I've had many close calls. Yes, there were situations I said I should have not gone in. You know, there was a situation where the person I studied about and had my thesis about, Chris, um, Chris Harrington, he was killed 200 meters away from me. And when I was 16, 17, I did my thesis about him. You know, and the guy was killed in Libya just a few hundred meters away from me. So yes, he had many many, many brushes, and close brushes to, to death. Um, I've been kidnapped by Hamas in Gaza. I've been shot in Syria. I've been um, detained by Libyan forces in Libya. So every war zone has its different stories. You could say one is worse than the other. Which, was, what, which is worse, getting shot or getting kidnapped? I think the kidnapping was worse, you know, because the shot, you know, it hit you, boom, you're on the ground, you know what happened. And then it's all about survival mode and getting out of there. When you kidnap, you put somewhere, you're stripped naked, you have guns pointing at your head, and you don't know what's going to happen next. You know, you don't know if it's going to drag for an hour, for a day, for a week, for a month. You have no idea. So, again, every war zone is different. But, Renny, you tell a story behind the images that you have taken, and some of the images look like the stories could be quite harrowing. Um, on your website, I've seen photographs of conflicts at areas of, of kids holding a machine gun, a boy holding a machine gun. There's pictures of migrants, there's m- murders related. Do these stories stay with you? Do they impress on you? How do, how do you live with what you see? Um, <laughs> it's a weird question because there are times I suffer from it. There are times I'm okay with it. Um, sometimes when I come back from a war zone, it takes me two to three weeks to settle in again, to sleep again, to sleep properly again at least. And there are times I just come back and I'm just okay immediately. There are times I flew from a war zone straight to an MTV red carpet. So you're seeing, uh, on a Monday I'm seeing dead people, heads chopped off, literally, you know, pieces everywhere. Kids blown to bits, hands stuck to teddy bears. It's horrible. And literally the next morning I'm flying, for example, one of them was in Amsterdam, I'm flying there. Um, doing the rehearsals, and the next day I'm shooting the most paid celebrities in the world. And that is a big shock for your system because you are on the flight, you're still editing death, death and you know murders, literally, and within minutes you're shooting something where people are making tons of money. It's all glamour, it's all fake. So, yeah, I think that is a bit of a brain conflict for me. Yeah. Has it made you passionate about human causes? Or has it made you um, skeptical? Has it made you... It just made me just appreciate life much more. Um, 
especially like all the bullshit we give to our kids these days, all the iPads and the phones and the games, and, and these kids are happy with nothing. You know, I have three kids myself, and I know it's so hard to entertain these kids. When you go to these war zones, even if you go to India, and kids are entertained with um, a plastic bag full of um, grass, and they're shooting it around. Old school, it's amazing like how we grew up, just playing on the streets, and how these kids are always happy. And the kids in Malta, or I'm not saying in Malta in general, it could be in practically any other modern country on earth, um, our kids are not happy. I don't see the happiness I see in these kids abroad. I mean, you go to Syria, and if you go to Syria today, and, and the war has been going on for eight or almost nine years now, which means, if you think about it, any kid who's eight or nine years old, from the moment this kid is born, knows nothing but war. So can you imagine a nine-year-old? From the moment this kid was literally conceived, war. So yeah, the war zones affect me in the way that you appreciate life much more because you see how happy everybody is with nothing. And so then, how does that affect your relationship with your children? Oh, it's a nightmare. Believe me, it's a big, big, big nightmare because from one hand you see what the kids have and what the other kids around them have. So these days life, you know, would, I'm a very um, anti, um, how am I going to put it nicely and politely, anti-private school person. I don't believe that paying huge amounts of money is everything to become someone. Um, I believe that the education you give them at home together with a good education at school is a good balance. And these schools, unfortunately, have ruined some of our children. Let's not say all of them. You know, it becomes a competition. Who goes to school with the most expensive shoes, who has the best phone, who has the biggest parties, um, which mom drives the biggest SUV for one tiny kid to the school. These things for me become disgusting. I cannot look at my kids going to school anymore and you see mothers dropping off one kid, literally 60 centimeters by 20 centimeter kid in a massive four by four. It's, it's, it's all waste. You know, these things, this is how wars have affected me. And when I see my kids mixing with these type of things, it pisses me off heavily. Um, can you stop it? No, you can't. But you can try and give the kids a balance of what you're doing in your life and what they are doing to try and meet halfway. And it's, how do you do that balance? How, and what do you do with your kids to, to um, balance I, I teach my kids the outdoors, the great outdoors. We live outdoors, literally. We try and go camping when we can. We, we surf, um, you know, stand-up paddling, um, Land Rover, 4x4, four four, mud, you know, that type of lifestyle. We travel a lot. Obviously, COVID has stopped me from traveling with the kids now for almost 18 months. But we travel. I take my kids away twice or three times a year. And it's never a hotel holiday. No, I'd leave that to the rest. For me, it's either a trek to the highest point of Etna or it's a trek in the mountains or it's kayaking or it's mountain biking, something the kids can do. Are you creating mini René Rosignons? Well, I hope so. There's two of them already. <laughs> no more of those, hopefully. You've also shot some amazing personalities. I was going through your website again. You've shot prime ministers, presidents, the Pope... You've shot the queen, for goodness sake. What is the one shot that you've taken that still sticks with you today where you're like, oh, I got that. That was the money shot. Oh, God. But you're talking about celebrities and prime ministers or it could be any shot, truly. Let's go with celebrities and, and prime ministers and then come back to any shot because obviously there's something else there. Okay, so the celebrity shot will be, for me, obviously, without any doubt, the highest paid photo on the island, what I would believe is, the photo of Brad Pitt and Angelina on honeymoon in Malta, which is the first photo ever taken 
and the whole world, obviously, of Brad, Angelina, all the kids, the nannies, and the security all together having a blast on a private yacht. So the moment that was taken, that shot was taken, the, bu- the bubble was burst. And all the photog- there were 88 photographers in- on the island trying to capture this shot. So when you manage to get that shot and you burst the pressure, you burst the bubble for them, oh, it's like war. But yeah, when I got... How did you get that shot? Oh my God, long story. No, no, I can't go into details of how and what because there's obviously legalities involved. But as a paparazzi, you know, you do things to get what you need. And being in war zones, being able to hide as a sniper in war zones, being creative, how to float with cameras in your hand and all that crap, it helps. So, yeah, but I still remember when I, when I took the photo, I had glandular fever. I had 104 fever and I still went out in the scorching sun and I managed to get this photo. And on the way home, I was singing all the way and people must have thought I'm some nutcase riding my bike and singing and screaming because I knew what it was worth. You know, it was something very, very, very big. And within 24 hours, you know, you had literally every magazine that deals with celebrities on earth. And I say that definitely. There's no one that can tell me, but you didn't have it published in that. Mag-. Yes, I did. I mean, you could, you, if you just mention a few of them, you know, okay, hello, New York Times. Um, oh, my God. Even Financial Times. It's got nothing to do with celebrities had it printed. It, it was published in 63 countries alone. So every country could have 10, 15 publications. You know what I mean? Just imagine that number. It was big. It was very big. So, yeah, that photo will be the celebrity number one. And the other photograph, where you got, you mentioned... Well, there's the kid holding the Kalashnikov in Libya. So that was the front cover of my book. And that kid, his name is Mohammed. He lost his father, his mother, and both his brothers in uh, airstrikes by Gaddafi back in 2013, if I'm not mistaken. I spent two weeks in Libya living with the rebels, and I've seen all sorts of things. I mean, people dying and people dead. I've seen... Rooms were with mass graves, you know, people all beheaded, all stuck in corners. People put against walls and shot. And that is the stuff that affects you. But the moment I got the shot of the kid holding this gun, just the look on his face was enough. I turned onto my driver. I said, listen, I'm done. You can take me back to Egypt. I got what I wanted. So I could have stayed longer. I could have got much more photos. But that was the shot which made the day for Why? me. Just the fear in the kid's eyes. You know, just imagine a 14-year-old holding this. Kalashnikov is a very big gun. It's not a small gun. And the kick it gives you throws me. I'm 81 kilos. I've shot this gun. It literally throws you almost on the ground. A 14-year-old kid, as skinny as a broomstick. But the fear and the anger in his eyes for losing his parents and his siblings. And he says, you can kill everyone. You can't kill me. I've got this gun to protect me. And it's it's impressive. Just the look in his eyes for me does it all. So was that shot then kept for yourself? Was it used for publications? What what was the outcome of that I don't shot? believe the shot was ever published internationally. I doubt it. But I knew that that's going to be the front cover of my book when I shot it. You just, you just know it. I can't get anything better than that. So basically, even after that war shot, I tried to cross in, in, um, in the mountains in Afghanistan. And I did the same route Steve McCurry did. So Steve McCurry, for those who don't know him, is the famous photographer for National Geographic who shot the front cover of The Afghan Girl, the most powerful photo ever taken. This guy has done millions in royalties, I mean millions of dollars of royalties from just one image. Till this very day, 
I had dinner with him four years ago, a lovely guy, and he said, till this very day, I still receive royalties from that one image. So anyway, I did the same route he did. I crossed from, from Iran into Afghanistan, Pakistan mountains, and the portraits I got are amazing. So I understand where he got that from, you know. Still, this Libyan kid was much more powerful for me. And I'm looking at it right now, and it does speak straight into your, your heart and your soul. Yeah, yeah. It's Definitely. an incredibly powerful image. Now, of course, that's not necessarily what makes you money. What makes you money is the red carpet and the celebrity shots and the weddings and so on and so forth. Talking about celebrities going back, and we're jumping from one to the other all the time today, and I'm enjoying the kind of dichotomy, but talking about celebrities, are they they generally a pain in the ass? Has there been one celebrity that's just a downright pain in the ass? I'd call her a bitch. (laughs) Her name is Ariana Grande, Jesus Christ. My girl, what a difficult person. So I remember I was shooting the, the backstage event at the MTV event and, you know, Ariana Grande is walking in and her people come out. No photos, no photos until we put her on the carpet, we fix her dress and she can't be looking from the right side of her face and only the left side of her face can be visible. I'm going like, Jesus Christ, like what's wrong with this kid? She was 16, 17 back then. And then like when they placed her and like, and then the security goes, okay, you can't take photos now. I just get my camera down. I said, no, I don't need this. Thank you. You know, why? Literally, why? What's wrong with you? You barely hit puberty and you're telling journalists how to stay. Oh, no, forget it. Yeah, these things piss me off. I've met some amazing people like Enrique Iglesias, for example. We've sat down, had a drink, spoke about relationship problems. You know, he was dating or whatever, married to the tennis player back in the day. Excuse me, I don't know if she was married or dating, but anyway. And he spoke relationship advice. That's amazing, you know. And then you have someone like Rita Ora again. Each time she sees me, hey, Malta, how are you? Oh, my God. Like, you see so she many people. She calls you Malta. Hey, Malta, yeah, how are you? Yeah. So some celebrities are amazing. Some are just sneaky, you know? Like, you just, they're there at an event, like Beyonce. She's been at six events with me. I've never seen her. They use the back door entrance and back door, you know, in and out. Some people are just difficult. Some are amazing. And, you know, sometimes when you see a celebrity and literally on TV and on magazines, you say they're larger than life. They're huge. They're amazing people. And then when you see them sitting down on the ground or just waiting for the turn to go on stage, it's just a normal human being. You know, I've witnessed um, that other guy I really, really don't like, Justin Bieber. The moment he came backstage, he had five MTV trophies. And he called his mom and he goes, Mom, 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 I won everything. I won, I won. And he goes, Mom, I promise you I'm changing my life. This is it. I'm changing my life. And it's true. Since the last time I saw Justin Bieber, his life's totally changed. I mean, when I say changed, his music has changed. Now his music is all about relaxed, love, peace. His attitude has changed. He doesn't get in trouble with the paparazzi anymore. You know, he doesn't swear at people anymore. He's a totally different, committed, relationship kind of guy. And I witnessed the phone call with his mom when he came out on the backstage. So being in certain situations gives you these type of opportunities. Another time, way many back, many years ago, Jonas Brothers, nobody knew who the hell they were. You know, they're outside waiting for a cab and I'm calling a cab with them. You want to share a cab? And we didn't fit in one cab, but we, I almost got in a cab with them. And then the next year, they were much bigger. And he goes, hey, you remember me? We were going to share a cab. And he, yeah, yeah. You were outside in the Liverpool. Oh, my God. It's amazing. And something I like about the stock images I have of celebrities, I'm almost at the 300 mark. So 300 celebrities in my, on my hard drives. 
that when you see them year in, year out, or maybe even a number of years, you see them changing, you see them growing, maturing, getting old. I mean, I'm getting old for sure, but when you see how Miley Cyrus has progressed from the Disney quiet girl to the nutcase that she went in two years after, you know what I mean? And that's a lovely progression to, to actually visualize in images. You talk about these celebrities, you talk about uh, the red carpet, you talk about the conflict zones, you talk about all of this. Now, all of this, of course, is only possible when you can travel yeah. and when people can travel to you. Yeah. You have spoken out a number of times over the last 12 months about your frustration at the COVID situation. Has it really been that bad? Has it been no work for René Rosignol? Has it well, been devastating? You have the biggest banks in the world who are breaking down you got the most powerful governments on earth who are literally bankrupt so why can't Renee be bankrupt too you know I'm just a little guy from a little island in the middle of nowhere so yeah it's been tough we know artists who have lost everything and I'm, I'm practically one of them I wouldn't say I've lost everything but I've lost so much I've lost my home you know that we're friends so you know I've lost my house I've had to sell a car I've had to change my lifestyle I couldn't buy new equipment um, living on 20%, maybe 25% income, plus sustaining three kids, it's it's not easy. That's not the main problem, you know. I just It was a life lesson as well, that don't put all your eggs in one basket. And this is a life lesson for every artist out there. When you live in such a small island, you cannot depend on just art. It's unfortunate to say this, but you cannot. When you have full-time artists, like I'm a full-time I don't do anything else throughout the day. You know, you have some people who are waiters in the morning, for example, and then photographers in the afternoon, work in a shop or an office in the mornings, and then they're wedding photographers in the weekends. I'm not like that. You know, I wake up and leave every day with my camera in my hand. So the moment events stopped, the plane stopped, I can't travel, and wedding stopped. I've got nothing left to do. So the 20% which was left, or maybe 25%, is the little bit of corporate work which was still going on. You know, weddings, what weddings? Everyone's stuck at home, postponing for the fourth or fifth bloody time. Everyone's going mental. Brides threatening to sue you because they want their deposits back. You cannot give a deposit back to anyone because if you give one back, you have to give to the 77 brides who had to postpone. And that's bankruptcy right there. So yeah, COVID has been tough, but I believe that I'm still here, I'm still standing. And I have no doubt that other people have, have it worse than me. Well, Chris Dingley was saying just a couple of weeks ago, and he talked about the mental challenge of some days, you know, come on, let's go, everything's going to be all right. And some days I don't see any way of going on yeah, because yeah. everything had gone. Do you think that, and I asked him the same question, do you think you've had enough support as an artist? Because we, we saw that recent comment in the news, uh, unfortunately from a minister of culture uh, and suggesting that they don't have the IQ for business. Yeah. Do you think that we get enough support as artists here in so Malta? Let's, let's put it this way. Malta was never um, a place where arts and culture were very much respected. It was always a problem. In the last years, especially with um, Valletta Capital of Culture, things were pushed very, very forward. So even if it brought nothing towards the country, which it did, I'm sure it did, but it pushed many artists forward. I was not pushed forward. I kept on going the same rhythm I was. But it was a big leap. Um, the minister comments, I think, although they're very stupid comments, and obviously he should know better, but I think they were taken out of context. If you understand what he wanted to say, he tried to say that artists are not business-minded in that aspect. I may agree with him, because many artists put all their eggs in one basket, and that's where the business-minded person comes in. 
So me as an artist, I lost everything because all my eggs were in one basket. Weddings, travel events. Now I need to know that I need to push on my corporates to keep my corporate going because corporate will never stop. So in that aspect, he may be right. The way he said it, it's just pure dumb and nothing else. It's not about IQ. It's all about you being comfortable doing something and you need to be comfortable having a backup plan. Now as an artist, if you have no backup plan, when the crap hits the fan, you're on your own. The biggest issue that COVID will ever leave, not only in Malta, but all over the world, will be the mental health issue. You could lose your money, you could lose your home, you could even lose your kids, your, but if you lose your life, that's once, obviously. If you lose your mental health, it's very, very hard to get back. I've suffered from mental health issues practically all my life. Um, my mental health issues are just anxiety. If I get very anxious, I get depressed. So can you imagine when you have all these brides literally shouting at you, you're trying to make ends meet to support your own kids, you know you're losing your own house because you can't pay the monthly payments, and then yeah, depression kicks in. And then you get someone saying, oh, because you're depressed and they're laughing at you. You have no idea what people are going through, you know, but it makes you stronger because going through all that, I can take COVID on and on again now because now I'm relaxed about it. Whatever happens, there's nothing I can do about it. You know, tomorrow's another day. I'm still here. I'm still smiling. New house will come, new car will come and life goes on. You know what I mean? We had 2019 was an epic year. You mentioned about the arts. 2019, I remember being a huge year. We had so many things going on in Malta. And I think we all got to the end of 2019 and went, wow, Malta is on the map. This yeah. is incredible. And of course, then COVID hit. I was reading in The Economist that after every big global catastrophe, whether it be Spanish flu, the Second World War, economies boom back harder than they ever did before. Yeah. I'm hoping that's going to happen. Can you see that happening for you? Well, they said that the world is going to kick right back after the last recession. It didn't. Um, I think that this one's a bit different. Things will pick up for sure, but there's so much depth. You know, even artists are in depth at the moment. We cannot buy the equipment we need to flourish. You know what I mean? Even, even a guitar player, he wanted to buy new equipment. Maybe you're going to be stuck with the same for the next two years. I know that people are, are frustrated. So, for example, travel is going to explode. Most of us have been locked on this rock for 16, what is 18 months 18 now? 18 months. The thing is that do we have the money to spend it on travel? We don't care because we're going to spend it on our debit cards. You know, we're just going to go away now. So that's where it's going to boom. As for the arts and culture, will it boom? It will. But this thing... This Things will take time because money, the people are going to put their money into their happiness first before it gets to these things. You know, 2019 was an amazing year for arts and culture. And 2019 was a record income year for me as well. When COVID hit, it hit on a, the biggest, highest note the country could ever have. So everybody was on a high of money coming in. So suddenly when everything just stopped within days, it was a bigger hit. You know, this is like when you're in a very bad marriage and you expect it to break up the next week, the next month. You just know it's going to happen. So you're expecting it to happen. But when one morning your wife wakes up and says, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving, it hits you harder because you weren't expecting it. So this is what happened with COVID. If we knew it was coming, we'd all have more money saved. We'd all put our eggs in different baskets and be prepared for it. Hopefully we have learned. I just hope that from this we can treat the world a little bit better. Apart from the way we save money and stop using the single-use plastic, stop dumping in the sea, keeping our beaches clean, 
respecting people with mental health issues, respecting each other on the streets. Stupid small things which can change the world. Because ultimately, COVID was a lesson. It wasn't just a pandemic. It was a lesson for us to get better as a, as a civilization. René Rosignon, thank you so much for those wise words. Thank you so much for being on The Interviewer. I'm wishing you all the very, very best and looking forward to seeing you back out there and having a brilliant time changing what we see in the world. Fantastic. Thank you for this, Trudy. Really.